you would please remain standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Sermon text for today will be uh, primarily from Exodus 27, 9 through 19, but also Exodus 38, 9 through 20. We're going to read Exodus 27, 9 through 19. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, both the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, with their three pillars and their three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, of blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be uh, filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze." The cubits of the, the length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Um, we pray with me, please. Lord God, I pray that you would speak to all of us this morning from your word. I pray, Lord, that you will be present here this morning. We know you're present here this morning, Lord, in your Holy Spirit, that it will work and move among us savingly and sanctifyingly. Lord, do a, a mighty work in our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Steve Hopped. I'm one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. You've seen the other two, so Pastor Jason uh, give the call to worship and just now read the scripture text. Saw Pastor Nathan leading musical worship and hey, by the way, is it your birthday today? Well, happy birthday! We'll try to celebrate your birthday in a more dignified manner than we did. I love that song we sang. Uh, before the pastoral prayer this morning, captivate us, devastate us. Have you ever been devastated by God? Consume us. Well, that's my prayer for us this morning as we look at God's word. Imagine for a moment Adam and Eve living in the beautiful garden that God created for them. They are living in constant communion with their creator in whose image they were created. They are fulfilling his calling on their lives to expand the garden and to subdue the earth and so that the glory of God would encircle the entire earth. They plan to live there for all eternity, growing each day in joy and being more and more fulfilled 
as human beings, but then, but then they sinned, and God cursed them and all of their descendants, and he cast them out of the garden to live in a cursed world. And now their work is hard. Now, for the women, childbirth is painful. Now family relationships are strained. Husbands tend to be domineering over wives, and wives covet their husband's place of leadership, and brothers kill brothers. They're living in a world of death. It's a temporary world now, no longer permanent. And as they trudge through this life, they no longer enjoy that that intimate communion with God. And they long for the permanency of the relationship that they enjoyed with God in, in the garden. And that longing is still there in our hearts today. That longing for a relationship with our Creator. That longing for a relationship with someone greater than us. A permanent relationship. We hate, most of us hate change, don't we? We want things to remain the way they are, even though they're imperfect, because we fear they might get worse. We cling to life in these bodies that grow ever more weak, ever more frail. We long for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has placed within the heart of man eternity. Another way to say that is God has placed within the heart of man a desire for a fulfilling relationship with him that will last forever. Today we are continuing our preaching series through the book of Exodus. And right now we're focusing on on chapters 25 through 31, where God gives instructions to Moses for how they are to build a tabernacle, and also with chapters 35 to 39, where where Moses and the Israelites execute those plans. And I'll tell you, these are not easy chapters to preach because they're filled with those exact and often repetitious instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And and those are the kinds of passages where if we're going to be transparent with each other, we tend to skip or skim through. That's my default setting. I'm going to skim through this. I, I know what's here and I know, you know. And so it's been actually really satisfying for me to hear Pastor Jason and Pastor Nathan and have this opportunity this morning to preach through and we talk about the significance of the different parts of the tabernacle and the different instruments that they use. We draw these inferences out of the passage and we draw them out of the rest of Scripture. And my prayer is as we read through Exodus in the future that God will bring to mind the significance of everything that's in it and it will bring to life these passages of Scripture. Today's text gives the specifications for constructing the curtains that surround the perimeter of the courtyard of the tabernacle. 
Now, we've, seen, we've used that word tabernacle a couple different ways. The word tabernacle can refer to that inner tent, that little tent that you see up there in the upper left part of that compound that contains the most holy place and the holy place. It was a 15-foot by 45-foot rectangle, and it was 15 feet high. But then you see surrounding that, those two, uh, that, that tent is a patch of ground, most of it on the east side, and that's called the court of the tabernacle or sometimes called the courtyard. And then you see a fence that is surrounding that, and that's what our passage is talking about today. That fence that they construct with curtains is 150 feet long, about half the length of a football field. And it's 50 feet wide, about a third as wide as a football field. So you could probably fit six of those comfortably in a regulation football field. And often we talk, call that entire complex the tabernacle. And the court of the tabernacle and the curtains that surround it are, form our topic for today. My aim in preaching this passage is to show that sinners banished from the presence of God may find eternal life in Jesus Christ and through him have permanent access to God. And my prayer, as I just mentioned a moment ago, is that we will be overwhelmed with what God shows us through the curtains that surround this tabernacle and the, and the uses for it. And that God will... Make it come alive for us, that he will captivate us, overwhelm us with his love and his mercy and his grace, and that that will then cause us to live our lives in that knowledge. That will help us to interpret the things that happen to us in our lives in light of the knowledge that, that he shows us today. So we're going to start this morning by establishing that the courtyard of the tabernacle gave the Israelites a foretaste of permanent communion with God. Again, I said a while back that Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were fulfilling the calling that God had placed on their lives. They were created in His image and they were entrusted with bringing the whole earth in, down in subduing it and bringing it into submission to God for His glory. That garden was their home. That's where he placed it. They were God's people, and their place was the garden, and that is where they communed with him. You might say the garden was their temple. But then they were cast out of that temple because of sin. And Genesis then gives us the, uh, what happens to their descendants after that. And we notice that God is, for the most part, other than talking to Noah, God's kind of absent. Well, not completely absent, but we don't really see uh, explicitly God working, except we see Enoch walking with God, don't we? And then we see God calling Noah to build an ark. And finally, we see God calling Abraham, living in Ur of the Chaldees. And he calls him and he says, I'm going to make a place for you. Remember, they've had no place, right, since the garden. 
I'm going to send you to the place that I'm going to give to your descendants. He said to the old man, married to his wife with no children, right? And your descendants are going to be millions and millions. And they're going to have a place. And I'm going to dwell with them and be their God and they will be my people. And so then we see through Genesis that that Abraham moves his family about a thousand miles to that land. But they live there as sojourners. They're strangers in a strange land. They really don't have a place. Same thing for his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Now, wherever they are, they build altars to God, but there's no place where they go and they say, okay, that's where we go to commune with God. And occasionally God would speak to them. But then they go to Egypt because of the famine and they live there for 400 years. And you might say, well, that's kind of like having a place, isn't it? 400 years, that's a long time, longer than the United States of America has been here. About as long as we've been on this continent, maybe. But it wasn't theirs, was it? Again, they were strangers in a strange land. They lived among a people who worshipped other gods. And some of them even began to worship those gods. And again, there was no place to go. And we don't see any indication in there of people really seeking out God and communing with God. But then God calls Moses. And Moses leads them out of Egypt, and that's where we are now in Exodus. And God is beginning to establish by giving them the law. Establish that he's their God and they're going to be his people. And now he's giving instructions for the building of a tabernacle, a place where his presence will dwell, and a place where they can come to commune with him. The tabernacle was intended to be portable because they weren't finished moving around, were they? God wanted to take them to the promised land. Again, they messed up and they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, moving from place to place, but the tabernacle was portable so that wherever they went, they would take down the tabernacle, they'd move, and the first thing they would do is construct the tabernacle. They would put the tabernacle up, and then the rest of the camp would be set up relative to where the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was like the anchor point. And you can see there, that's, that's how that they would arrange themselves in their camps around the tabernacle. It was their north star. And so while they were moving from place to place, listen to what I'm saying here. The tabernacle gave them a sense of this is where we go to commune with God. No matter where they were located, in the center of the camp was that tabernacle. And they knew where to take their offerings and they knew where to take their sacrifices and where to go to commune with God. And so while the location changed, the pattern of the camp gave them a sense of permanency. Imperfect though it may have been. It gave them a foretaste of a permanent communion with God. Now let's talk about the tabernacle for just a minute. Surrounded by walls. Can you put that other picture back up, Nick? Surrounded by walls, they were seven and a half feet high. So they were high enough that a person couldn't see 
over them to see what was going on inside of the tabernacle. But interestingly enough, they were low enough that they could still see the top of that, 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 that tent where, which contained the most holy place and the holy place. And they could see possibly the glory of God shining out of it, but they really couldn't see what was going on inside of the tabernacle. What was the purpose of that wall surrounding it? Well, part of it was to keep wild animals out, but the main purpose of that wall surrounding the courtyard of the tabernacle is what we've seen. It's a theme that we have seen the last several weeks. It was a separation, a barrier to protect a sinful people from a holy, holy, holy God. But the curtains didn't just keep the people away from God. They also provided them a limited access to him. When God gives the dimensions of the court, if we look in verse 9 of our passage today, he says the south side should be 100 cubits long. And then he says in verse 11, the north side should be 100 cubits long. And in verse 12, he tells them that the west side should be 50 cubits. But what about the east side? Well, let's read again verses 13 through 15. The breadth of the cord on the front of the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits. Keep that number in mind. We're going to do a math lesson with the three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits. Put that in your mind with their three pillars and three bases. Now let's do a little math. The whole thing's 50 cubits long. You got 15 cubits of curtains on the left and 15 on the right. Do I have someone under the age of, say, 18 who can tell me what 15 and 15 is? Yes. Very good. Almost right. It's 30, 30 cubits. We got 30 cubits of curtains, 15 on the left and 15 on the right. 50 minus 30 is 20. That leaves 20 cubits, right? What goes there? Look at verse 16. For the gate of the court shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. There's a gate. There's a gate on the east side of the tabernacle. And it's not just a skinny little door that only people not shaped like me can fit through. But it's 30 feet wide. 20 cubits is 30 feet. That's two double garage doors almost. Okay, it's a wide opening. God has instructed Moses to place a wide gate in the curtains surrounding the courtyard for the people to go in and out, a wide gate for people to have access to the presence of God. And isn't it interesting that God placed that gate on the east side? Pastor Nathan told us a couple weeks ago that when, when, when God threw Adam and Eve out of the garden, he put a cherubim on the east side of the garden to protect the way to the tree of life. But that... When he instructed them to build the most holy place, he put the entrance on the east side. 
And then the holy place has an entrance on the east side. And now we see that the courtyard has an entrance on the east side. And in that I see God saying, I cast you out on the east side, but now I'm building a bridge to invite you back in on the east side. Now, while the gate to the courtyard signaled access to God, it was not complete access, was it? The access was limited. And we've been here before, but it's worth repeating. The most holy place, with its veil in front of it, only one person, the high priest, could enter, and that once a year, and then only under certain conditions. And then we had the holy place, and only certain selected priests could enter and do their job in the holy place. And now we have the courtyard, and notice there's quite a bit of room between the gate of the courtyard and and the entrance to the holy place. And smack dab in front of that entrance, you'll see there in the picture, is the bronze altar. That's what the people were allowed to come into the tabernacle for, so that they could bring their offerings, and so they could bring their sacrifices to the bronze altar, and then turn around and leave. So they didn't get to just wander around the tabernacle. It was a limited access. But not only was it limited by that, it was also limited by the fact that the Mosaic law had, had laws for cleanness, right? And only Israelites, and maybe some who had converted to Judaism could enter there, but only if they were ceremonially clean. And there were a plethora of ways, that means a big number, kids, there were a lot of ways for people to be unclean. If you ate the wrong foods, you were unclean. If you bled or touched blood, you were unclean. If you had certain skin diseases or illnesses, you were unclean. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. If you had sexual relations with your spouse, you were unclean. And so I'm sure there were many times in the life of every Israelite where they were unclean and had to go through certain cleansing rituals in order to be allowed back into the tabernacle. The access was limited and imperfect. Well, I say imperfect. It was perfect because God ordained it, but it was limited. And take note, how many gates were there? There was one gate. There was no gate on the west side. No gate on the north side or the south side. There was one gate and only one gate, only one way to enter the tabernacle, only one way to enter into somewhat the presence of God. And that was the way prescribed by God. While the access that the Israelites had to the tabernacle was limited, it was always intended to point forward. It was always the gate in the tabernacle was always intended to point forward to the more perfect gate. 
It was always intended to point forward to the more perfect gate who would give the people of God complete access to the presence of God and give them that complete access everlastingly. The gate in the tabernacle courtyard wall was intended to point ahead to Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 10. I'm going to focus beginning in verse 7, but in order to understand the context, I need to read some of the verses preceding that. We'll start in verse 1. Jesus is talking, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. But then we read in verse 6 that the people didn't understand what he was saying. Well, what was he saying? He's saying to them, I'm the shepherd of the sheep. In fact, he finally comes out and tells them that later. He says, I am the good shepherd. But it says in verse 6, they did not understand what he was saying. They didn't understand what this figure of speech was that he was using. So, so he changes metaphors. And so look in verse 7 now. John chapter 10, verse 7 says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You see it? Jesus is the door to the sheep. Jesus is the gate in the tabernacle courtyard. Jesus is the only gate that God provides for his people to enter into his presence. Later in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to have access to God the Father. And that's the whole goal of the gospel, is to have access to the Father, to have communion with Him. God is the goal of the gospel. God is the reward that He graciously gives to all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and their salvation from the wrath of God. God is the goal of the gospel. Look in 1 Peter 3.18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Jesus is the door. 
And Jesus is the way and Jesus is the means by which we are transported through the gate of the tabernacle. And when we get to the bronze altar in the courtyard, Jesus is the sacrifice on the bronze altar. And when we move through to the holy place and into the most holy place, Jesus is the veil in front of the most holy place. Jesus is is who everything in this tabernacle is pointing to. You know, when we, when we look into the most holy place, I think it was, I think it was Pastor Nathan who preached, when we talk about the, the, that the Ark of the Covenant is there and the mercy seat, that's where the mercy of God meets the righteousness, meets the justice of God as seen in the law of Moses. But that's still pointing to Jesus Christ and his cross, which is where the mercy of God met the wrath of God. Where the love of God met the justice of God. I hope you're overwhelmed with this. I hope you're captivated by it. I hope your heart is singing, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. But not only can we have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ, but that access is permanent. And our hearts that long to have a permanent relationship with someone greater than us. It's available to us through Jesus Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have what? Eternal life. Everlasting life, permanent life, a permanent relationship, a permanent communion with our Creator can be yours in Jesus Christ. And for the people of Israel, while the location of the tabernacle changed every time they moved to another location, it provided for them a foretaste of a permanent communion with God. Later on, when they had taken the promised land and they settled Jerusalem, and after they'd had a couple of kings, finally Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem. And now they had what they thought was a permanent place to go and worship, didn't they? But guess what happened to that temple? It was ransacked and torn down by the, by the Babylonians. And then they built another temple in the time of Ezra. But guess what happened to that temple? It crumbled. And then they built a huge, beautiful temple. Not long before Jesus appeared on the earth. And what happened to that temple? It was torn down by the Romans. So the temple was not that permanent place of communion with God, was it? I want you to turn to John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling through Samaria and he stops at a well and he meets a woman by appointment. 
And they're talking about living water and all kinds of good stuff. But Jesus finally says in verse 22, woman, or 21 rather, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Followers of Christ, we can worship God in spirit and in truth because when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his people and to guide them into all truth. Therefore, Paul can confidently say in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know? saying this to individual believers, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Isn't that amazing? We are the the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we corporately as the church are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God for his glorious grace that he gives us access to him. But even this, this right here, this temple is not permanent. (laughs) Believe it or not, I'm going to grow old someday. And unless Christ comes first, I'm going to die. And my body is going to return to the ground from which it came. But God's promises are true. And his word is eternal. And I want to take us to Revelation 21 where John is seeing a vision of God's people at last being in God's place for all eternity. The new Eden. And here's what John sees, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates, catch this, its gates will never be shut by day. And so what does that make you think? Well, what about at night? So what does John say? And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. That gives me goosebumps. I hope it gives you goosebumps. God is moving salvation history in such a way that we return to a better Eden, a better temple, a place where we are able to commune with God in the most intimate way because He, God the Father and the Lamb, are the temple. And we will commune with him. If you are a part of the people of God, you will commune with him for all eternity. And that relationship is sure and that relationship is permanent. Oh, Father, I pray that you will overwhelm us with this, with the knowledge of the glory of God. 
I pray that you will teach us what it means to commune with you intimately. Overwhelm us with this knowledge. This is the message of the court of the tabernacle. That sinners banished from the presence of God find eternal life, eternal life in Jesus Christ and through him have permanent access to God. So how should we respond? Well, if you're not trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation, let me ask you this. Do you long for a relationship that is permanent? Do you long for a relationship where you are completely known and perfectly loved anyway? Listen, one day everything that you have on this earth is either going to be lost, stolen, it's going to crumble to dust, or it's going to be forgotten. How does that make you feel? Does it overwhelm you with sadness, hopelessness? Are you longing for something permanent? I invite you to come to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the gate to eternal life. He is the gate to eternal joy. He is the gate to eternal communion with your Creator. Faith in Him will give you an abiding hope, a living hope for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you by the power of the Almighty God. You do long for communion with Him, whether you know it or not, or whether you're willing to admit it or not. And so I plead with you this morning to place your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. When we take communion in a moment, I ask you not to take it if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, or you haven't been baptized in a local church. But instead, I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray and ask God to show you the truth of the gospel, to enlighten your heart and enlighten your mind, maybe for the first time, to the truth of the gospel that Jesus is the only way. And I'll be sitting in the back, and you're welcome to come back and talk to me. If you want me to pray with you, truly, if Anybody that wants prayer, I'll be sitting back there. I would love to pray with anybody, or I'll be glad to talk to you about the gospel. But for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, how should we respond to this message? Well, I want to encourage you to to respond with great hope. I want to encourage you to meditate on, on the truths that we've seen this morning. Listen, this life is temporary, and everything I said while ago is true for followers of Christ as well. Everything you have in this life is either going to be lost, stolen, uh, become dust again, 
are forgotten. But for a follower of Christ, that doesn't make us sad. That causes us to rejoice because we are citizens of a better city. We're citizens of a better country. We are citizens belonging to a better king. And the things that we have in this life, we know they're temporary. This church building is is temporary. People are not going to come to this building for all eternity to commune with God. Your relationships, they're temporary. Your homes, your money, everything you possess, they're temporary. Meditate on that and let that knowledge, listen to me, let that knowledge inform your view of the world. Let that knowledge inform the way you interpret the things that happen to you in life. Because you know what else is temporary? All your problems. All your trials and all your tribulations and all your illnesses and all your relational struggles and and maybe poverty. Everything that you have that is troubling you is temporary, and in light of the eternal length and the eternal, um, the infinite amount of the glory that we are going to have forever with the presence of God, they are light momentary afflictions in comparison. And God sent His Holy Spirit When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell believers, listen, that's the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And so I encourage you, when you have problems and trials, don't despair. Instead, come to Him. You have access forever to the Creator of the universe. Come to Him in prayer with confidence by the blood of Jesus. Meet with him on the pages of Scripture. Listen, in all these trials that we have, in all these tribulations, if you are a child of God, you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. But fear not, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And so if you are a follower of Christ and you placed your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins and you've been baptized in a local church in affirmation of that profession of faith, I'm going to invite you here in just a minute to come forward and to partake of communion, which celebrates the fact that Jesus gave his body and his blood so that we could have access forever with God. Now, we've, uh, we're, we've, we're going to start doing it this way. This is going to be our permanent way of doing communion. So pay attention. We don't have carts in the back anymore. Okay, so all you got to remember is exit to the left and return on the right. Exit to the left, your row, return on the right. And when you get back to your seats, we encourage you to take communion with your family. We encourage you to pray together, maybe talk to your kids for a little bit about communion, and then take it together as a family. We'll give you a few minutes to do that.
Again, I will be in the back if anybody wants to pray for you, anybody wants to pray with me. But for those of you who should, you may now come and, and partake of the Lord's Supper.